on, let's give him praise in this place. Hallelujah. You may be seated, Father. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. What a wonderful name. It is the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my Lord and my Redeemer. And Lord, as I speak to your people, these are not my people. These are your people. They belong to you. They don't belong to this world. Lord, you've purchased them with your very own blood. Our lives have been bought at tremendous cost, a cost that could never be calculated or estimated paid by one the very blood of Jesus our lives are not our own we've been bought with a price not with perishable things the Bible says such as silver and gold but with the very blood of Jesus Lord I'm speaking to your people who are blood bought and Lord I want to speak words that are right words that are from your heart Lord, I'm careful, and I try to be as careful as I can when I speak to what you prize and what you look over and protect and never leave or forsake. So, Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit you would open our hearts and our ears to receive your word, that it would bear great fruit in our lives. Only your word can bear that fruit that we seek and that we need. Lord, I pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus for your people. And all God's people said, Amen. Isn't it great to be together? Wonderful to be in God's house together today. We are continuing in this series of messages titled, New Life in Christ. And last week, if you remember... We read from Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through to verse 15, where Paul, in just four verses, brilliantly encapsulates the wonderful gospel of grace in his message to Titus. From Paul's short but powerful summary of the gospel, we lifted out four points about God's grace that relate directly to our lives. Let me quickly remind you of these four points as we begin this morning that we're covering and looking at. Firstly, we said that Paul here in Titus chapter 2 shows us that, firstly, God's grace rescues us, saving us from sin. We covered that a few weeks ago. Then secondly, from Paul's message to Titus, we understand that God's grace reforms us in that it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Then thirdly, as Paul turns his attention to the future and looks out, we also see that God's grace rewards us as it gives us eternal hope. Then fourthly, as a final point, 
Paul assures us that God's grace redeems us, making us his very own. A grace that rescues us, a grace that reforms us, a grace that rewards us, and a grace that redeems us, all packed in to these few verses in Titus chapter 2. The Word of God is an incredible, incredible, exhaustless resource of abundance. It truly is. Now today we're going to continue in this second point that we've started to explore of how God's grace reforms us as it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And I think this is the third week that we're on this second point. So we're not, in one sense, doing too well in moving through these points. But I tell you now, there's so much richness in God's Word that we have to stay here, certainly this week anyway, and consider this again of how God's grace reforms us as it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Verse 12 Titus chapter 2 is where Paul highlights the practical role of God's grace in our lives. He says this, verse 12, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's power. It really is. That's a life that's under the power of God, under the power of grace, under the enablement of God's favor. Now today, to see just how important it is for us to have grace as our teacher and as our instructor in life, we're going to look at two very different types of life. One life that is under the instruction of God's word of grace, It's a life that's succeeding, prospering, and thriving. Empowered to say no when no is needed. And then, in direct contrast to that blessed life that we are going to look at, we're going to see another type of life. A life that does not rely on the direction and the correction of grace. A life in many ways that is tragic, and chaotic and sinfully driven that makes decisions and choices that are very erratic that doesn't have access to the guidance of God's Word. Let's turn to Psalm chapter 1 and here we will see a picture of a man that loves God who lives in God's favor Yet alongside this portrait of a righteous life that we are going to look at in Psalm chapter 1, we will also see a sad picture of the world of the wicked who refuse to come under the blessing and the restraint of grace. The blessing and the restraint of God's Word. Let's read Psalm chapter 1 from verse 1 through to verse 6. It says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted 
by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The picture of life really doesn't get any simpler or more stark than what we've read about in Psalm 1. Here is laid out before us two very different types of life. David's first picture is a summary of the blessed life. It's a summary and a description of your life if you're in Christ Jesus. Blessed is the man, is the word that David proclaims as he opens this wonderful psalm. And one of the meanings of this word blessed in the Hebrew language is to be supremely happy. Not a happiness that is based on chance. Not a happiness that is waiting to begin when happenings occur. But a happiness, an endless happiness, a supreme happiness that finds its joyful fulfillment in none other than God. Blessed means to be fulfilled, to be contented, to be complete, to have God's endless favor focused localized on your life all of the time every moment of every day it's where all of the facets of your life are infused with the very life of God and as a result of that infusion of God's life of God's spirit of God's power your life abounds your life is abundant Blessed is a word in the Bible that holds such rich meaning that it can never ever be adequately summed up. It defies description. Why? Because it involves God's lavish abundance. It involves God bringing all of himself into what he blesses. It's interesting, just yesterday I was reading Genesis 1 and 2. And it's an amazing recount of how God created. And he creates the creatures in the sea and the sea teems with life. And he creates everything that crawls on the ground and that teems with life. And he creates all the trees and all the plants. And all has seed within it. And then the supreme moment comes when he creates man. And he creates man. And, it's, and, he, and out of God's mouth, after, 
after seeing what he'd created in creating man, he announced that it was very good. But then, after he'd created, he began to bless, to pronounce blessing on everything that he had made. It was already alive, it was already created by him, but now he was infusing what he had created with his own life, with his own power, with his own sustainment. And for us to understand, to try to understand this very word that God used right at the beginning of the moment where he set out everything that he'd created and going forward for it to be so fruitful and fulfilled. For us to understand this one word that he pronounced over everything that he that he brought into being is completely impossible. There's a mystery about this word that you'll never be able to define. It's undefinable. It defines every form of expression. And yet David here in Psalm 1 is kind of saying that whilst we can't explain or express what this word blessed means, it can be experienced. For in this psalm is a picture of a man that has an experience and an understanding and a manifestation of God's favor and God's blessing infused into every moment of his life. It's also significant when you read this psalm to see that this blessed person that is spoken about in Psalm 1 has no name. The description given is very simple. He is a man. He's unidentified. He has no name. David just simply says, blessed is the man. And the point to understand from that is this. This man is not blessed because he holds some sort of title or carries any outstanding moral qualities or characteristics about his life. There's no suggestion that this man has any previous pedigree as to why he should deserve this blessing on his life. He's a man. David doesn't say, blessed is the king who holds a position of power. Blessed is the scholar that is educated and has a broad intellect. Blessed is the strong and the victorious in battle who've attained personal greatness. No! Blessed is the man. That's what David says. What's being pointed out is this. That this blessing of God is ready to come on anyone. This could be talking about you. It is talking about you. It could be talking about me or anyone else in the world, for that matter. Because the key to this rich, happy, blessed, prosperous experience is found in what this man delights in. This man delights 
in the Word of God. It's not a duty to Him. I wonder today if we went round this room, would we be able to say honestly, hand on heart, looking at our lives, that the Word of God is our delight? As we parallel our lives against this man's life, I don't think I could say, I don't know about you, but I don't think I'm at a place yet in my life, and I love the Word of God, but I don't think I'm at a place yet where it is my delight, I want it to be. And I believe in these days the Holy Spirit is going to put His fire in His life into our very life experiences, and one of the things that's going to return to our our Christian experience is a delight for the Word of God. You're going to delight in it like this man. And the, the Word of God holds out this offer, holds out this invitation. This isn't a description for us to just sit back, read and admire and think, well, do you know what? If only, no. This is your portion. This is your inheritance for the very word, the living word of God to become the very fiber of your spirit and your soul and your life experience. No, he's just a man. Just a man. Other things to note from reading this psalm is that this is important. This man hasn't been removed from the everyday pressures of life or taken out of the world in which he lives. He hasn't received this blessing, this favor, this infusion of God's life into his life as a result of trying to live like a hermit, hidden away, trying at all costs to avoid contamination from the world around him. No. This man, just like you and me, faces very real external pressures all around him. He feels the trials of life. He feels the temptations and the pulls of this old world ravaging him. And yet he makes his choices about life, his decisions from God's Word in which he delights. This isn't a picture of a man that's running away from his world, trying to frantically hold on to the blessing of God at all costs. No, he's right in the middle of the world, right in the middle of it. And it's happening all around him. But that blessed position, that blessed state that he relishes in, that's his portion every day, is untouched by all of the forces of the world around him. This man is a man that's surrounded by strong voices that want to influence him. We know about those strong voices and those influences that come from every direction sometimes into our mind and into our heart. And we grapple with our emotions and our feelings as they're pulled by this world that has a power to influence our flesh. All forms of pleasure are calling to this man for his involvement. 
And he's constantly being pulled to belong in this and to belong in that. The belonging of the world around him is straining to get his attention and to be a part of the crowd that does not want God in their midst. Read the psalm. And all of these things are swirling around his life. Continually moving and trying to mold and manipulate him in a given direction. However, it's a wonderful picture. There is a way in which he will not walk. A path where he will not stand. And a seat in which he will not sit. David makes this clear in verse 1 by saying, He walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. He stands, nor, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. It's not that this man doesn't hear the counsel of the ungodly. His ear hears it. That strong majority voice, that overpowering opinion that seems so persuasive and manipulative, that loud, brash, confident voice of unbelief. He hears it. And in many ways, this man is seen as a minority amidst a majority. He's alone, but he will not walk in ungodly counsel because he measures every decision and he assesses every voice by the voice in which he delights. And that is the word of God. The path of sinners often cuts by his life and crosses him, offering quick fix promises, diversions and shortcuts of every kind. But this man never ventures, never ventures onto that ground. As Psalm 119 verse 105 says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So this man never stands in darkness. His every step is lit with the lamp of God's word. You know about that lamp. You know about that light because many times it's shone on your path when other alternative routes have come and crossed your life. But the light and the lamp of God's word has carried you on through. And you're still here today. I'm still here today on this journey with Jesus. Why? Not because of our, our wisdom and not because of necessarily the choices that we would be able to make in and of ourselves. It's because of the lamp, the light that shines and illuminates our way. If we did not have it, we would be lost, long gone. But God's faithful word lights the way through this journey 
of life that we are on. The scornful may offer him a chair to sit down at. Sit down on so that he can discuss his choices and his faith in belief as he believes in God, but this man will never take it. He'll never sit with the mocker. He will never sit with the scornful and, and discuss what he delights in. He's not going to allow anybody to dissect that precious word that he loves. No, he delights in that. And therefore, he will never sit in the presence of those who would question the God that he loves. Walking in the counsel of the ungodly begins with acceptance, which leads to action being taken. On from there, the progression grows. And this is what David shows us to where an individual stands in the way of sinners. That's not just about acceptance and action. Here, when an individual stands in the way of sinners, it's more about association and agreement. And then on from there, there's a more, more permanent place of being seated with the scornful. And this is what the world wants to move you towards. This is what the world of this man wanted to move him towards. Into a posture, a fixed position where you settle and you stay. Where you're assimilated and allied to unbelief and questions about a loving God that reaches you with his love. This man will not entertain any of those means of living. He will not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He will not stand in the way of sinners and he will not sit in the seat of the mocker. We could say, as we've been reading, that grace was his teacher, teaching him to say no in the face of every form of ungodliness. Think for a moment about what makes you happy. What gets you excited? What are those moments that you desire in life? Everybody looks for that elusive experience of happiness. Nothing wrong with it. And they look to this and they look to that. That elusive experience of contentment. What makes you happy? What gets you excited? And the answer is important for us to understand because very often when we understand the answer to that question, we begin to see where we place our values, what we put our priorities of life into. I wonder if what motivates our happiness would motivate this man. Because this man is excited and delighted in God's word. So much so that David shows us his daily timetable. It's just taken over with meditation on the word of God. Verse 2, David describes 
that this man can't go a day. It's like he can't go a moment without just thinking about the Word of God. It's a man that's possessed by another world. It's a man that's possessed by thousands of promises that team out from God's living Word. Psalm 1 verse 2 says this, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. This isn't duty. This is delight. This isn't a man thinking, oh, where shall I turn to in the Bible just, you know, to make me feel good because I haven't read it for a long time. This is a man that is driven by delight. And it's there in the Word, an open invitation for all of us. For us to see that this is a beautiful place, a wonderful place, a glorious place for our lives. And this delight that this man has in the promises of God and in the Word of God leads to an amazing future. And the outcome of it, we find in verse 3, where David says, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. There's no uncertainty about this man's life. There's just guarantee after guarantee because his delight is in the Word of God. There's no chance happening. Is there anybody that wouldn't want a life like this? It's a picture of stability and strength planted to thrive and to grow. It doesn't fear drought. It doesn't fear barrenness. It's full of fruitfulness and prosperity. Why? Because God, God is its source. Now the fact that this man's life is planted by rivers of water indicates that he did not start there. Okay? What's being implied is that this man started out somewhere else. He was chosen and taken from where he was and transplanted by the hand of another. He was planted by his creator, planted by his designer, taken from where he was to where God wanted him to be. He's been removed. When you look at the psalm, He's been removed from point A and taken to point B. David has given us a wonderful picture of transformation, of new creation and salvation. And Paul, the apostle, just like David, talks about our lives being taken, transformed and transplanted into Christ, taken from sin and death, and made alive together with Christ Jesus. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 2, 
Words you will know well from verse 4 through to verse 9. It says this, But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a picture of our lives being taken from sin and death and transplanted into the glorious, wonderful life of Christ Jesus, where now we are seated in heavenly places. The goodness of God's grace lavishly poured over our sinful state, making us anew, bringing us into everything that is destined for our lives, pronounced, blessed, and favored by grace. The Apostle Peter also points out that God has made us his very own, taking us from a place of where we were not into a position of where we now are, God's people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10 says this, for at one time you were not God's people, but now you are. At one time you knew nothing of God's mercy because you hadn't received it yet. But now you have, yeah, sorry, but now you are drenched with it. Just like the man in Psalm 1 that was taken from one place, one position in life by the hand of God and transplanted and brought into another place of life where his life flourishes and grows and thrives under God's goodness and under God's blessing. So our lives have been taken from that ground where we were not into a place where we now are recipients of God's lavish, abundant mercy that's been poured over us. It's wonderful. It really is. Also, you look at this life that David portrays in Psalm 1 and you see that rivers converge at its roots from every direction. David doesn't say that this man's life is just fed by the supply of one river. No, David says that there's rivers. There's rivers converging at the roots of this life to feed it many rivers supplying rich abundance in an exhaustless way and of course this all points to our wonderful Lord and Savior Jesus who said in John chapter 10 verse 10 I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly what is that phrase more abundantly mean it means his supply far exceeds your need his supply of life far exceeds 
any need that you will experience in this life, any problem that might come your way, any circumstance that might try and jump up and surprise you. His supply exceeds your needs. I have come that you, that you, that they might have life and life more abundantly. What is it that you need today? Is it peace? Is it joy? Is it assurance? Is it supreme happiness every single moment of every day? Is it contentment? Is it the favor of God resting on you and a conscious sense of his presence whereby he never leaves you or forsakes you? His, his supply of abundance will always exceed any need that you have for your life. Planted planted into an endless supply that can never be exhausted because God is its source. The result of all of this is obvious. Fruit. Vissery tells us that this man brings forth his fruit in its season whose leaf shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. Imagine that. Nothing about this man can ever be characterized under the phrase failure. Whatever he does, whatever he puts his hand to, whatever he gets involved in just prospers. Even when all of the odds are against him, he prospers. Because he's not now living life under his own power, through his own strength. There's another power that he has access to. The mysterious power of God's blessing is on his life. And it's, it's just flowing into everything that he does. Because it is everything he is. The other side of saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions is a life that's planted a life that prospers in all seasons of life, stable and strong. Yet this psalm also shows us, and we come into the closing moments now of our service. This psalm also shows us a vivid picture that details the tragedy of a life that does not have God in it. David warns that life without God is like chaff. In verse 4, he says, The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. And any life that falls under that terrible, hopeless description should break our hearts. It should break our hearts when we see men and women and when we see young people, irrespective of where we are, and we see that their lives and their decisions and their course and their walk and their direction in which they're heading is coming under this phrase, chaff, worthless chaff. It should break our hearts to see it. It broke David's heart. It should break our hearts. This is not a cold, critical remark 
that David makes here, just glibly condemning those who lived a wicked life, who had become like chaff. He wanted to see others come under the same blessing of God that he and the righteous had experienced. His heart was heavy for people that came under this worthless description. How do we know that? Well, when you read Psalm 119, verse 136, you see that David was grieved for men and women that did not know the blessing of God on their life and those who did not have a delight in God's word. Verse 136 of Psalm 119 says this, talking about David, rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. David was a man of tears. David cried out to God for the world around him. He didn't just live in the comforts and the confines of a palace. He saw men and women who were heading towards a lost eternity. Men and women that was on a road far away from God. And it broke his heart and it should break our heart too. You may have tried to reach out to others and told them about Jesus. And you know, you've had that cold, critical, angry response from them. And you've backed off. You tried. Or you may have had a very intellectual, cold response. Leaving you feel like a fool in their presence. You feel as if they're in control of the conversation. And you haven't got any kind of defense. You're under their foot. Powerless. And you're a fool for Christ. You don't know what to do. Well, I'll tell you what to do. Don't give up. Don't give up on your friends, on your family, on your colleagues at work, on men and women that you see just in the course of everyday life that you come into contact with and rub shoulders with. Don't give up. If they have not responded well to you speaking the gospel of God's love to them in the goodness of His grace, the answer could be to try tears. Let the rivers, let the rivers of your soul run down from your eyes and cry out to God for those that have no delight in the Word of God, that have not turned their hearts to Him. There's a story about a group of people from the Salvation Army that were trying to break to bring breakthrough into their city and they tried they went out and they they told people about Jesus but it seemed so hard it seemed so difficult and day after day they tried and it, the ground was so barren nobody was receiving Christ so they sent a little message to William Booth And they listed everything that they did. They listed all of the methods that they 
had tried. And Booth sent a little telegram back. It was very short. He said this, try tears. Try tears. They tried tears. And suddenly the wind of God, the power of the Spirit, started to move across that city to the point where people were getting born again everywhere and receiving the wonderful good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, your friend may have rejected you in your office, in your workplace, in your home even. Maybe it's time to try tears. Maybe it's time to let the rivers run down your eyes. Like a young man did many years ago in 1904, 29 years of age. He walked this land. The churches were empty. No sign of God's favor. No sign of the gospel going forth. Previous generations had seen moves of God in this land. But now it had all come, it seemed, to a standstill, to a halt. The public houses were full. Entertainment was high. Nobody wanted to go to church and sing hymns. I mean, what do you want to do that for? We got better things to do. And they went out best they could, telling people about Jesus feeling like fools in the face of the world's wisdom and the world's way. And this young man saw the state of the church. He saw the state of this nation. And do you know what he did? He tried tears. Rivers, rivers started to come down from his eyes for the godless, for those that had no delight in the word of God. And suddenly, mysteriously, what we would call as revival just exploded over this land. And in under 18 months, in under 18 months, 250,000 souls were swept into the kingdom of God. The pubs were empty. I know, I know. Only he can do it. Only he can do it. And, and, and people on their knees where rivers are running down from their eyes, for those that are in need of salvation. Suddenly the pubs are empty. The churches are full. And they're not having services like us. You know, where you pop in for like hour and a half. Oh no. It's like they're there 8 hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, 14 hours. And, and very often, do you know, there wouldn't be somebody on a stage like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm talking today. No, it would just be orchestrated by the Holy Ghost and he'd move over the congregation and it would be ordered divinely by the Spirit of God, by his power and, and song would break out. We love what our worship team does, absolutely love it. But many times the congregation will lead in the worship. Come on! singing, rejoicing, and it would sway from, I mean, it would sway from one, 
one song to another song and there was just this presence. One occasion, and I read this, I thought, my God, this is incredible. The church, Evan Roberts turned up to a church. It was so packed because he wouldn't tell anybody what church he was going to. But irrespective, they didn't turn up for Evan Roberts. They didn't care whether he was there or not. All they wanted was the Holy Ghost. All they wanted was the Word of God. All they wanted was to be, to one, to be together with one another as they delighted in the Word of God day and night, day and night, every day. I don't know what it's like to live at that level, I tell you. But from all accounts, as you read history, it was absolutely glorious. And this wonderful nation hosted, hosted, this small nation that we live in, hosted a glorious revival that shook the world. Shook the world. He turned up at one service and it was packed, jammed to the door, right? Everybody was standing and they were tightly packed in. Talk about health and safety. <laughs> there were none of that, right? Packed in. And they were just all singing. And they were just literally in another realm. There's another realm. I'm telling you now, the realms of God, when the power of God comes through, there is another realm that can take you out of this natural realm whereby you feel, you, you know as if you're in heaven. There's another realm. It's where the kingdom of heaven comes on earth. And we've been encouraged by Jesus to pray for it. The kingdom of heaven. And they're all packed in like sardines. Do you know what had to happen? I think it was one of the first occasions of crowd surfing. Evan Roberts had to climb over their heads. This is history. This is in the history books. He climbed over. He couldn't get through them. So he had to go over them. He stood up. This is what happened, right? He stood up, read a verse, and then shot off to another church. <laughs> Hallelujah. This is, this is the heritage. Now, we can't say when it's going to happen. I pray to God that it happens in my lifetime. But I'll tell you something now, if it doesn't, there's a generation that's coming in Wales that will host the glory of God. I'll tell you now, and where men and women, where men and women will converge together to give God praise for the wonderful gift of His Son, Jesus, our Savior. It's going to happen. And the Holy Spirit has been trust, trusted with this, with this work. And I tell you now, Whilst we may fail, he certainly won't fail. He really won't. Hallelujah. I'm going to ask the musicians to come. We're just going to draw this to a close today. This psalm is as relevant today in our time, in 2021, as it was written and penned by the writer over three and a half thousand years ago. These two contrasting pictures of life are as real today as they have always been. 
the need for us to be that tree planted where we are in life with our roots going down into those many rivers of God's blessing. The need for us to be that tree in our world is vitally important. Where our lives hold forth this wonderful fruit in its season. Where our lives demonstrate through its green leaf that doesn't wither a God that has grace for every occasion of life. This picture points out that we are blessed as God's people, but we are not blessed simply to be blessed. We, like Abraham, are blessed to be a blessing. Amen. Your life is a means of provision for others to receive from. The fruit that comes from your life, the peace that you hold in your heart, the joy, that supreme happiness that your life roots draw from is to be an expression for others so that they can access this very same grace that you have in your life. Proverbs, finally, Proverbs 11, verse 30 says this, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and he who wins souls is wise. Tell you now, the greatest thing that you or I can do with our lives is to win a person for Christ. I'm telling you, it's the greatest thing the greatest thing and I know that this is many the heart of many of us here this morning but I'll tell you something now the moment that you're born again there's something that goes into the DNA of your spirit of a divine call whereby you have to fulfill the commission that Jesus Christ has set within his church where he said go out into all the world and make disciples preach the good news about my saving grace and the fact that I've risen from the dead and there's life eternal in me there's something in your DNA in your spirit that wants expression to reach another and to win another for Christ let's go out into our world Let's not hold back. The greatest sin that any of us could commit would be to hold back this great salvation that we have received from recipients that need it so desperately, from people who are like chaff. We were once chaff. We were once worthless. Our lives fell under that hopeless description. Our lives... We're just like chaff driven by the wind. But now this glorious salvation that we've received in Christ has transformed our life from that worthless place of being like chaff into a fixed, stable position where our lives are like a tree of life. We can't be silent about that. We can't be quiet about that. Wherever we are, wherever we go, let us, that's right, Tone, let us herald the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.
And listen, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. I'm going to close with this. Remember, I tell you the Lord will help you. He'll help you. He really will. A number of years ago, I shared this story, but it's good to share it again. A number of years ago, I'm on my bike, and um, it's a Sunday night. I'd spoken here in the morning, and I'm going, enjoying myself. And I'm, I'm going up this fire road through the forests, and I see this, this, uh, this four-by-four truck, this man in it. And as I'm approaching, the Holy Spirit just speaks up in my heart. And he says, I want you to tell this man about Jesus. Just not strong, just very quiet, like a whisper that you can stamp out. But very quietly, I sensed that. Well, I went up to the man's truck, started talking to him. There was a lot of felling of trees and he was a security guard in his truck looking after the equipment that was that was in the forest started talking to him about the you know what he was doing and how he was looking out for and managing everything that was on site and the felling of the trees and what it was going to mean for the trails that I was riding And, you know, we just had a, a conversation and then I just, I said, well, have a, have a nice night, mate. All the best. And I, I, I rode on. And as I was going up that fire road, I got to the top of the mountain. And I said this to the Holy Spirit because he'd spoken to me about telling that man about Jesus. I said this, Holy Spirit, sorry for not telling that man about you. Do you know what the Holy Spirit said to me? As clear, as clear as I speak to you today, he said this, sorry is not good enough. You see, you see grace, when it's your teacher, it'll bring correction and order as it did for me. Sorry is not good enough. I rode on and I, my heart was heavy. Because now the Holy Spirit was pulling me up, and rightfully so, rightfully so. I said, Lord, if you'll give me another chance, if you'll give me another chance, I'll do what I can. Well, midway through the week, I was going up the same fire road. There was a four, there was a four by four. Oh my God, my heart started beating. Second chance, come on. I'm going to go for this. I don't care if I have to open the passenger door and jump in with him. He's getting it. Hook, line and sinker. There he was. He was a bouncer from Neath. I mean, you're talking about a big, big muscly fella, but a lovely, a, a gentle giant. A gentle giant. But you didn't mess about with him. And I went on my bike. Spoke to him. I said, oh, look. And this is what I said to him. I said, you know what? I failed you. I failed you on Sunday night because I should have told you about Jesus. 
I said, forgive me, please. And then I told him about Jesus. Simply. I said, Sue, he loves you. He wants to save you. He wants to give you life. I said, would you like to pray a prayer with me? Do you know what he said? Yes, please. I'd love to. I prayed a prayer with him. Simple prayer. And I said, when are you, when are you around next? He said, well, I'm here on Sunday night. Three days time. I think it was about three or four days time. I said, I'm bringing you a Bible up. I said, I'll be here. What time? He told me the time. The next week I took him a Bible up, prayed again with him, and on I went. Within months, that man had gone. I may never see him again, but oh, the joy of winning, of winning a soul, of winning a soul to Christ. And listen, listen, listen now. It's not easy. You're going to feel like a fool. We go out with the outreach team. I go out with Tony on a Monday night. And we often talk, Tony, don't we? You feel like a fool. You talk to people. Some people abuse you. Some people curse you. Some people swear at you. Some people don't want anything to do with you. But then there's those. And suddenly, you got 30 young people in a in a precinct in Pontypool, openly praying to God, asking Jesus into their heart. This is what we want. This is what we live for. I don't know if they'll ever come to this church. That's, I'd love them too. Tony would love them too. Jason would love them too. We'd love that for them to be in the family of God. But you know what? irrespective they've connected with God and their lives are so precious I tell you you'll cry tears rivers will flow for your friends and let them flow let them flow because do you know what you'll see God do wondrous things what you say in secret in that private place when your door is shut, God will reward you openly. And especially when you start taking souls into his presence and your heart is loaded with them and you are expectant to see salvation, I tell you, you'll see it. You really will. I better shut up, man. Otherwise, you're going to miss your dinner. Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your love. You have placed us here for such a time as this. We believe it. We look around and sometimes our heart is so heavy by what we see. Men and women struggling with life choices. And Lord, bound by all kinds of things, please would you help us. Use us all in different ways. We're not all the same. We're not all going to speak the same. Lord, use us in different ways. Would you please help us? Holy Spirit, you are the helper. We want to tell people about you, Jesus. We want to win souls. We want to be wise. We want to bring in this wonderful harvest that you have given your blood for, Jesus. Lord, we pray, wherever we go this next week and in the months and years to come, 
We pray that our lives would radiate the beautiful life of Christ that reaches and appeals to any man or woman that might see it. That, Lord, we'd be able to look back over our lives and say, do you know what? I spent my time well because I won others to Christ, taking them from the kingdom of darkness and being a means and a laborer to take them into the kingdom of God's glorious light and of his Son. We ask this in Jesus' name for your glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Come on, let's give him praise. Let's stand to our feet. Wayne's going to close the service. God bless you. Have a great week and let's go and win our world. God bless you.